having grit is really passionately pursuing the opportunity and showing a motivation to persevere regardless of circumstance and seeing it the way that they approach the interview and the follow-up gives me confidence that they are a person with grit. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So I like to get these things started by reading your background back to you, and then you can tell me what I'm missing. So you went to UCSD, that's where you got your degree. Then you went to Imperial Corp of America. You spent five years as a VP there. You then went to Novus Technologies. When I say went, you founded it. You were the president, CEO, and director there for four years. Then you went on to found a different company, Numera Corporation, where you were the president there for two years. You then went on to PassLogics, founded that company, number three, and you were the president and CEO there, had a 15-year run doing that, which was ultimately acquired by Cisco at the end of your tenure. Is that right? Or sorry, no, Oracle. I don't know why I said Cisco. Yeah, another just a equally old and, well, I'm going to save, save, save my negative. Established legacy company. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. And at that point, I said Cisco because I think I meant to say SSO. That was the origination maybe of where you started to kind of foray into this authentication, single sign-on word, not to build your narrative for you. I'll let you do that. Then you were an advisor for a company called Whiptail, which actually was acquired by Cisco. And then at Oracle, you spent three years being the VP of identity management. And as someone who is a founder and CEO, I can't imagine you were elated every day going to work. So you became an advisor for CallSign, maybe concurrently, maybe after for about five months, which then also led you to be an advisor for a company called Authy. You spent five months being the advisor there. And then ultimately, I think we're so excited about what they were doing that you became the president and CEO. You spent six months doing that role, and then you were acquired by Twilio about a half a year into the gig, maybe a year, including the advisory work. Then you did a little bit more advisory work with Virgil. You're doing some stuff with Glasswing Ventures. You're currently on the board of directors for a company called OneSpan. And now at Twilio, you spent two years as the VP and GM for authentication, which again, presumably is the line of business most closely associated with Authy at the time. Then I suspect Authy, over that time, you did a lot of integration work into the Twilio business. Authy just became a part of the suite that Twilio may offer as a part of their go-to-market. You then became the SVP of global sales for Twilio, broadly speaking, for three and a half years. And as of two months ago, congratulations, you're the chief revenue officer at Twilio. Yeah, I think you captured all the events very well. And having it read back to me, it sounds like a very random journey. Having been in the driver's seat, there is some degree of logic and linearity to what's going on there. What I would sort of pick out and bring to the surface is I am a founder and builder by nature, having founded and led four companies. I like being close to product and customers. So 
many of the roles that I've had have always incorporated a significant uh, level of responsibility around both. My career from past logic, actually from Numera on, has been around authentication or identity and access. And so Authy, which landed me at Twilio, was the peak of my focus in that area. When I was tapped to help build the sales organization at Twilio, obviously I expanded my mandate to take on the broader overall communication capabilities we have at Twilio. So a little bit slightly different way to look at my career background, but love startups and love figuring out how to get to product market fit, repeatability, love figuring out how to scale and understanding how markets work so that you're able to you know, drive the highest potential outcome at the most reasonable investment overall. And that's, I think, the journey that led to Twilio and ultimately the experience that we've had over the last several years brings that all home. Absolutely. And I want to talk about that. I think your profile is a unique one in the sense that you're not necessarily a revenue leader by trade. And I mean that in a complimentary way. Like you're not myopically focused on revenue, you're company builder, as you mentioned. And so one of the topics I want to make sure we touch on today is how do you think that experience has informed the way that you are as a revenue leader? Twilio is notorious for quite literally and figuratively living in the customer's shoes. And so I'd love to touch on that. And then I think touching a little bit on the go-to-market motion of Twilio, talking about that, I want to make sure we get into all of that. Before I do, is your thing test driving the car before you buy it. What I mean by that is, and I like it, it's a good strategy, but you know, you kind of do the advisory thing for call sign, you do the advisory thing for Authy. And I mean this in a sincere way, like, is it a premeditated way of getting your hands on the business, understanding what it is? And then do you come in with the intent of, oh, maybe, or is it more of a, oh, I just want to be helpful where I can and understand the industry better? It's more of the latter. I consider myself an extraordinarily fortunate person. I've had the great opportunity to experience a broad range of unique situations, many of which, you know, it's not visible, were because of the fact that somebody helped me. And I can remember back very early in the days of Past Logics, one of my colleagues got us an introduction to this gentleman in the advertising industry named Jay Chayat. Jay didn't have an idea at all about what we were doing. And actually, I was confused many times when we shared our progress and updates. And, but he put some money in the company and then he opened up his Rolodex and he started introducing us to all kinds of industry leaders and opening doors for us to be able to raise private equity, et cetera. And I one day just asked him, you know, you don't get this. Why are you doing this? And he said, I'm paying back what was done for me previously. And that was just like, it always stuck with me. So when asked, I'll always try to be helpful. When it's really close to what I understand and know, I'm happy to get involved because I can then obviously share and make a difference. And there is a massive benefit to me, which is that I like being close to innovators that are trying to do things differently or pursue unique and challenging opportunities. And I get a lot of psychic energy and excitement off of the challenges they face and the journey they're on. So it's something I like to have as a part of the mix. It's something I can't imagine being without. And being in an organization that's you know approaching 4,000 employees at Twilio, Many of our customers are like that, and that's a, a great part of the uh, experience I have there. But I'm not sitting with them trying to figure out how to drive their business. So I love the fact that I still have the opportunity to participate with smaller companies. I did a quick Google search before this on past logics, and is the acquisition dollar amount public? I saw a couple articles that said blockbuster deal, et cetera, et cetera, with some really nice superlatives associated with it, but there was no revenue number. Is that right? Yeah, nothing was shared, and I believe I'm still restricted by the 
confidentiality agreement I had with Oracle, but it was a, it was a sizable outcome. It was a very well. Look, I like the idea of Blockbuster. We could just leave it at that. That seems fair. There you go. There you go. <laughs> it was a great outcome, and you know, despite the fact that Oracle is a, as I mentioned earlier, a legacy company, they're a phenomenal part of almost every major enterprise's infrastructure. The relationships and exposure that Oracle has in the market is extraordinary. And so in my time there, I had the great privilege to be able to work with many of the industry's leading biggest brands and had the good opportunity to be involved at a very senior level. So, you know, Oracle experience actually had a big benefit for me as well. It's funny, 15 years running a company independently now seems like a lifetime. I don't think it was always that way. And at some point, was it just a steady growing not necessarily 100, 200% year over year business? Like, what was that like? No, no, it was actually three different phases punctuated by the dot-com bubble burst and the mortgage meltdown. So you could effectively say we weathered two significant major obstacles in the market. And during the dot-com bubble burst, we dramatically narrowed our focus and actually went through a significant contraction of the company. So you can say that we came out of that as a different company in many respects. And during the mortgage meltdown, we fortunately had a very strong enterprise business. By that point in time, we were able to weather it, but we still dealt with the reality that, you know, purchasing slowed down. It was a much longer journey than expected. And I'd have to say the biggest lesson that came out of that is we didn't know at the start of it, the place that we actually filled in the market. And it sort of informed an outlook that I have that there are companies that are selling a feature. In other words, you can't use what they have unless you're actually attaching it to something else. There are companies that sell products, which are collections of features. And then there's companies that sell platforms. And I think markets tend towards platforms if there's scale requirements. So ultimately over time, feature companies will disappear at, let's call it tactical levels. Product companies will compete ultimately ineffectively against platforms. So they have to figure out how to innovate and, and change the market expectation or they disappear. So when you look back at past logics, past logics was a feature. Single sign-on is not a, you don't need single sign-on unless you have applications, unless you have to authenticate, unless you have a bunch of passwords. So you really need to have something else to need single sign-on. And ultimately today, most of the single sign-on is being delivered by platforms like Okta and Microsoft. And I, I think that's actually the right way to think about the, delivering those services. Do you think that part of the impetus for Twilio to buy Authy was to go from a feature to a platform. Like Twilio, when it first got going, it was just a killer feature. Like it did one thing extremely well and then started to go horizontally from there. I don't know. And we're going to dive into this, but do you think of it in the same way with Twilio or no? No, 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 no. I mean, I think when Jeff started the company and he made a phone ring, yeah, that was a feature. But as Jeff and the team then, because this is long before me, built out the platform so that it supported all the major channels communication, messaging, voice, and video. It's become a communications platform that developers can use to be able to originate and terminate all forms of communication from anywhere to anywhere on the globe. Mm. So I would actually say the core primitive capabilities of Twilio is a communications platform. Authy was a customer of Twilio. Authy utilized Twilio's messaging capabilities to do some of the authentication and registration of, we, of users that we had. And we built out a use case 
on top of the Twilio platform, an authentication mm -hmm. use case. That use case is a very powerful one, one that happens all the time. When somebody downloads and installs a new mobile app and has to authenticate to the supplier or somebody's doing an online banking transaction or an e-commerce transaction or employees trying to get access to their company network, it's something that happens all the time. We built out a fully featured, built for requirement solution utilizing the capabilities of Twilio. What Twilio saw at that time was in the market, a lot of people were doing what Authy was doing. And what they saw was customers were buying the built for solution. And it was Twilio's first foray into, let's call it the solution space. We have since delivered a number of solutions, probably the most significant of which is Flex, which is our contact center solution mm -hmm. that competes with the likes of Cisco, Avaya, and Genesis, and allows a company of any size to replace the traditional on-prem PBX type of solution with a modern software-driven communications experience that satisfies the typical contact center requirement. Ultimately, there's gonna be core API needs that we satisfy in the market, and we'll scale to meet the full solution requirements when it can actually be delivered in a platform type of experience. That makes sense. And before I jump all the way into Twilio, I had a quick question on past logics. When you said contraction, you know, I'm trying to do a better job in the show because we're very privileged to have folks like you who have had stratospheric career growth along with a lot of success associated with very successful companies. There's admittedly a lot of hard times along the way. And so I think how many people were at past logics before the contraction? Like, just give us a sense of, you know, you said there was three phases. We were near a hundred before mm -hmm. and we were below 20 after. Wow. And there was a small group of us that owned all the go-to-market activity. I mean, I can remember it like it was yesterday uh, where we hunkered down and got really focused and really, really sharp. We had this initiative because we were in Manhattan, New York, where we just didn't have the money to fly all over the world. And we started this whole initiative called Take Manhattan. And we each took different verticals and different call lists. And we literally went outbound and we landed customers that were some of the biggest global banks, biggest global media companies, insurance companies. But we took our focus to very narrow and very, very, very sharp. And the rest of the company, by the way, there's probably three or four of us that were effectively all of management and go to market. The rest of the company was engineering. It's awesome. Okay, moving into Twilio. As of today, I believe it's a 36 billion market cap company. Most people know what it is. Would you mind sharing maybe a good use case? Like how does Uber use Twilio? Just as an example, can you tell the audience what Twilio does maybe in the use case of, of a customer? Certainly, I'm happy to do that. What I can tell you without even looking at your telephone, I can tell you that you use Twilio and probably have 10, 12, 14 applications. What Twilio makes possible is to have communications, so messaging, which could be SMS or chat or email or voice, which can be your traditional phone voice or VoIP type voice experience or, or, or video, to have that kind of experience available in the context of the application or service. So whether you're coordinating the delivery of, your, of the food you ordered earlier, and by the way, I make it sound like it's a supply chain experience. You're waiting for your burrito. You want to make sure your burrito arrives warm. And the person that's coming to your house on their bike can't tell where the house is. They click, call you. You say, yep, it's the unit up to the right. That whole experience of clicking and calling you is happening over the application and service of the food delivery company. Same thing happens, say, coordinating the pickup by a rideshare company or the embedded communications experience when you click the call during 
an interaction around some marketing that's taking place and you're going to be talking to an expert on the other end or you're signing up for an online account and they want to do a KYC and open up a video session so you're face-to-face or now all the telemedicine that's happening when you're getting an invitation from the doctor, click the link and open up a video session so you can have that face-to-face but not live in person, live physically in person experience. I can go down the list. Anywhere you're experiencing communication in the form of software, I mean, this session that we're on right now, the voice that's going back and forth, the video that you and I are using to see each other, the telephone numbers that are made available to originate the session if somebody needs to dial in, all of that can be and may be powered by Twilio. Yeah, well, 40 billion of enterprise value doesn't happen by accident, does it? So thank you. And then to contextualize your role, what functions roll up to the CRO and ballpark, how many people are in your organization? The functions that roll up to me are obviously all of our, our selling organization, all of the funnel development organizations. So think of that as SDRs and BDRs, all of the field engineering that supports the selling organization, all the specialized selling team members. So effectively, all the, the folks that are responsible for generating the revenue that the company reports to the market. Today, somewhere north of 700, probably end the year, over 800 employees. The thing that strikes me about Twilio is it's elegantly simple. The solution is elegantly simple and it targeted a very specific market. Before I dive into the market that it targets, something that I was reading online, someone had a quote that I'd like to share and then maybe just get your reaction to. Platform startups often struggle to nail niche markets because customers can do so many things with it. Ask a platform founder, what can we use your platform for? And they'll answer anything. Jeff Lawson and the Twilio team are experts at getting into the minds and shoes of customers to nail niches in ways that we've created a platform company worth billions. And so I think the essence of what I just read is really around simplicity. And when you have a product that's so simple and ubiquitous, it's great because you could apply to any use case. It's also a double-edged sword because you're not taking Manhattan down. You don't have this extreme narrow focus What do you think about that? How do you think about that leading the go-to-market organization when you're tasked with verticalizing things and building teams horizontally and going after use cases? How do you think about that? Well, first of all, that issue, that question is the challenge that I think we're witnessing in the transition that's taking place in the market for technology today. Because we are actually seeing many of these stovepipe very narrowly defined technology categories be obliterated by platforms. And the platforms open it up for people to do anything. I'm going to use your phrase. So it is really important to be able to focus the customer on something they can accomplish that's actually important to them. I mean, this is traditional selling, right? We're going to look for something that they want to accomplish, and we're going to get them to focus there to run a sales cycle. It ends up being very tactical. It ends up being a specific use case. By the way, because of the developer self-service experience, we have oftentimes on their own inspiration, the developers have already started that journey. They've already started to build the use case that they have, or maybe even finishes it before a sales human gets involved in uh, interacting with them. The challenge is oftentimes that first use case is highly tactical and the power of the platform is extraordinarily strategic. So 
the challenge we face is finding sales humans that can have the conversation to be able to focus in on the use case, then be able to, let's call it, plant the seeds and create the awareness around where the customer can potentially go with Twilio, to think horizontally about all of the potential use cases and think horizontally about all of the ways that they can potentially improve the engagement they're delivering to their customers. And it's a tough juggling act. You don't want to defocus the developer that's very, very focused on getting something built right now. But at the same time, you don't want them to think this is all there is. And you want to have them help you to open doors and create the relationships that will lead to a platform adoption of Twilio. Hmm. Let me ask you this. So the last company I was at was acquired by Palo Alto Networks. And Palo Alto Networks is going through a transition as an organization, going from a hardware and firewall company to protecting your data wherever it might live. And data seems to live in the public cloud more and more these days. And so the company that I was a part of basically became the foundation for all things public cloud strategy at Palo Alto. And what they ended up doing was carving out our own BU within Palo Alto Networks. And the reason that they did that was because the defined core reps or the reps that sold firewalls can't speak to the use cases and the personas that the public cloud team might be able to. And so I guess maybe this is my long-winded way of asking the question to you. Do you feel like at Twilio, there needs to be specialization across the different use cases that you might have. And so specifically, you have different product lines, SendGrid, and maybe it's authentication and API messaging. I'll just leave it there and get your thoughts. Yeah, so any, and this is not just Twilio, any supplier that has a very powerful core technology that gets adopted in various ways by different categories of customers, that might be delivering premium capabilities on their core technology ends up with, at minimum, specialization in the form of an overlay sales team that takes on those specific areas. For Twilio, yeah, it's email, it's contact center, it's, it's account security. In some organizations, if the buyers are distinct and there's a way to separate the selling process without creating friction, you may even dedicate a sales force to go after those opportunities and not have them be a redundant overlay to the generalist that owns the relationship with the account. But oftentimes, I mean, at least in terms of what we're seeing right now, there isn't as many of those opportunities for the kind of breadth that our platform ultimately represents to a customer. And so today we have a, a very robust generalist organization that creates relationships and opens up the strategic consideration. And then they bring in through their advocacy for the customer and their priorities, the appropriate set of specialists to help in the sales cycle. That makes sense. And then I think specifically, do you think there is a difference in the profile of rep between those two? And I'll be even more specific. I think the main reason that there's specialization is for domain expertise, not inherent qualities or characteristics of the sales rep. Do you agree with that? We're completely aligned. I mean, the whole point of having selling humans is to help the customer to gain an understanding of what we have to offer and how it can align to their goals and objectives. And oftentimes they're gonna have a need for deeper expertise. And in order to win their confidence and ultimately win their business, having domain depth is not optional. The real challenge as we scale to reach the four corners of the total potential market is to align more and more of the selling that takes place. And this is not a Twilio thing. 
this is all selling. To align the selling that's taking place to the buying behavior and needs of the customers you're going after. And the more aligned you are in the way they buy, what they're considering, how they operate, their procurement processes, their technology capabilities, the more you're aligned to their circumstances, the more likely you're going to see efficiency, quick transactions at scale. That makes sense. The other go-to-market sets of questions that I have for you are around the way that Twilio has traditionally focused on bottoms up, right? Developer-centric motion, empowering the developer and then moving up the chain. I also think Twilio traditionally got its start more in the mid-market and SMB, not necessarily large enterprise. And so there are some things that I pulled from the 2016 10K, which was around when you started there. And one of the quotes was, historically, we've relied on the adoption of our products by software developers through our self-service model for a significant majority of our revenue. And we currently generate only a small portion of our revenue from enterprise customers. We have limited experience selling to enterprises and only recently established an enterprise-focused sales force. So you come from a world where, as you described the past logics, you were signing up some of the biggest banks. You understand this enterprise model. What was that like when you stepped into the role and was one of your charters to bring the go-to-market focus up? And in doing so, what did you have to do from an infrastructure in order to enable the business to sell into large accounts? Great quote that you found, surprising one, but a very accurate and still important perspective. You know, first of all, you know, I've always had developers reporting into me. This is the first place where I don't have developers. And actually, I'm even married to a developer. So I mean, the, the whole developer mindset is not one that is foreign to me. From a market opportunity and the way that Twilio has grown, it's a very important part of who we are and what we're about. And by the way, it does apply to every segment of the market. Developers are playing a bigger and bigger role in organizations of all sizes in helping organizations to you know, realize the same type of experience and benefits that disruptors have brought to the market. And that's all a dev-led mentality. You know, how do we actually instantiate the experience that will ultimately create adoption that consumers find pleasurable? A lot of that's coming from a developer mentality. So the challenge that we faced at Twilio is twofold. It's not just the infrastructure to be able to go after the enterprise. It was also the culture, being able to actually marry a selling experience with a developer experience. Because developer experience is very different. They're not there to be sold to. They're there to have questions answered, to be educated, maybe to be inspired. It's more of a educational experience than it is a sales and marketing experience. So we have built a model that is primarily focused on that kind of nurturing and development type of priority in the way that we engage our customers so that we don't end up with the developers feeling as though we're somehow or another failing and inauthentically approaching them. And then we build from there in order to be able to pursue the rest of the organizational opportunity. So we hire highly consultative individuals that are highly sensitive to the developer need, and we enable and and develop them to be able to be strong partners for our customers. And then we help them with the right resourcing in the form of specialists like we discussed earlier, but also other team members in developer evangelism or being able to put on hackathons or whatever the case may be, so that we maintain the developer focus as we scale into bigger organizations. So what we did, I think, at Twilio is that we actually delicately created a sales culture 
that was additive to the existing developer mindset. And we built out a selling organization that could reach all of the different segments of the market in an appropriate and rational way. And then tactically, how did it work? Selling to a mid-market or an SMB is very different from the routes that you run. And what I mean by that specifically is that when you're dealing with the Fortune 500 enterprise and you're talking to a developer, well, you need to build a business case with the developer that shows you what the technical value are you actually solving, what customer problems are you solving, and then take that business case, work hand-in-hand with that developer, and then build a reason for why the CIO should care. And there's that delta is many more layers in a big organization than it is small, which requires a different go-to-market kind of sales route running, if that makes sense. So did you think about that in a different way or did you have to adjust the way that those routes were run? Oh yeah, 100%. But let's not overlook a really important factor in what you just described. The most powerful advocate in a selling cycle is a strong internal technical team member saying this is the right way to do it, okay? And if I'm talking to their manager or the head of product or the CIO or any senior executive, for us to already have been pre-selected, it's extremely powerful, okay? So it's something that we feel very privileged by. In many cases, the developers already selected us before we've even engaged the customer. Now the challenge is to make sure that we are being respectful, honoring the relationship, and then building in a constructive fashion up to the C-suite. And yes, we have had to go beyond Twilio's, you know, here's your API, here's a bunch of docs. These are really powerful the way they've been built. They answer all the developers' question. We've had to layer on top of that, use case mentality, solution orientation, full ROI, TCO mentality, because we do make our way to the CFO, we do make our way to the CEO, and we've had to do that in a way that you know builds up from that foundational experience with the developer. We have filled out the entire traditional enterprise expectation in the way that we are going to market and building the relationships with the broader C-suite. What's been the biggest challenge since you joined four years ago? The biggest challenge has been it's not in the traditional sense of the term. I mean, many people think of challenges as impediments. There's no impediment here. What we need to learn at Twilio, and we have the good fortune of phenomenal leadership, is we had to scale quickly. You know, when I took this role, it was a couple dozen sales professionals. You know, you asked a moment ago, you know, we're going to end up this ending this year close to 800. That pace of growth is extraordinary. So we had to build the organization, the support, and the mindset to be able to scale that quickly. I wouldn't say it's a challenge. It was taking on the opportunity to build out to the potential that's out in front of us. And we're a long way from done. The market potential is vast and we're at the very beginning of this journey. So building the organization to reach the four corners of the the market, it's the opportunity that uh, we're pursuing and just work. It's not a challenge, but it's an opportunity. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned going from 12 to 800. When you do that, are there any core characteristics that you think are non-negotiable? And I say that because scaling fast is often a exercise of principles because you're not going to get every single hire right, but you need to have a few core maxims or tenets that 
scale. And what I mean by that is that Mark isn't going to hire or be able to be in every interview. And so you need to almost instill a set of common beliefs that you say, hey, these are the things that we look for. Maybe it's one, maybe it's three, but I don't know. Do you think about it that way? Maybe I'm completely off base here. No, 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 no. The people that we bring onto the team is the most important decision that we make. I mean, we all sort of pretend that "Ah, it's about the technology, speeds and feeds and the cool technical capabilities that we're delivering to the market. The reality is you can't make this stuff, you can't sell this stuff, and you can't support this stuff without people. And the way you get the highest performing organizations with the greatest overall potential is by hiring extraordinary humans. So no, your question is spot on. And figuring out how to effectively make sure that we're hiring the best and the brightest is something that we're constantly refining. We have a rubric that we've built that we partner with our talent team on that is a combination of factors we're looking for, processes we have people go through, and we're constantly utilizing the feedback from our experience, you know, what's happened with the previous cohorts that have joined the team to figure out how we can refine and improve that rubric. I'd say we have evolved it as we've actually grown and succeeded and been able to attract more and more of the best in the market. And where I think we are today as the trait that seems to be non-negotiable is what people are starting to call grit. It's become sort of popularized. You know, Angela Duckworth's book is great. And I think it actually brings to the surface a set of human elements that actually are at play for a lot of different roles and a lot of different things. But being able to have an individual that demonstrates passion, that just constantly perseveres, regardless of the obstacles or challenges they face, will ultimately be successful regardless of what they're doing. And when we find that in a selling human, we find individuals that tend to outperform the average, tend to actually reach the top end of performance. So we are trying our best to find individuals that demonstrate real grit. Hmm. By the way, now I'm saying this here, people are going to listen to it. We're going to go try to figure out our rubric. I'm not going to tell you how we do that because I'd rather that they don't come to the interview trying to perform for the, uh, uh, for the requirement. I'm not even sure if you know this, but the show is called Go to Market Grit. And the reason the word grit is in the title is because of Angela Duckworth. And I read that book and it's, I loved it. I think there isn't a better word. And by the way, I'm also not sure if you know this, but at the end of each show, I ask the question, what does the word grit mean to you? I'm going to ask you again. You're going to have to re-paraphrase what you just said. But it just does such a good job of describing this job. I did know it's go-to-market grit. And I knew it before you sent me the uh, the content (laughs) over. And actually, you and I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but it was part of the uh, reason I was responding to your your interest in talking. I do think it's, it's a unique characteristic. And... The folks that we have on our team are extraordinary, and I feel privileged to have them as members of our team. I appreciate that. I'm not going to get into the rubric, but could you share any of your favorite interview questions to qualify grit? Or maybe it's not a question, but things that you look for. You know, I had the CRO of Brex on, and he said, you know what I know when someone's gritty? When they're not overachieving quota, when they're number one when they are consistently number one. That was his response. Is there anything that you use, tricks and tools that help qualify for it? Well, we have different people with different roles in the interview process that are looking for different aspects. The part that I look for is the way they show up and the way they behave. 
something that always inspires me is somebody that approaches the experience as the most important selling they're ever going to do. And something that always diminishes my interest is when they fail at selling themselves. If they can't sell themselves, they're not going to sell myself. Okay. Yeah, white, fine. They'll, they'll learn the routine and they'll do okay. But if they're showing up and in the performance that they're providing, in the experience I'm having, I'm getting a sense that this is somebody that's ready to knock over obstacles and overtake challenges and not see problems. And you see it in the way that they behave with the interview, the way that they drive the discovery, the way that they incorporate their qualifying, the way that they tee up an appropriate soft close. Drives me nuts when I interview somebody and they don't try to soft close. But then also how they approach the follow-up and how they approach the expanding their footprint. So having grit is really passionately pursuing the opportunity and showing a motivation to persevere regardless of circumstance and seeing it in the way that they approach the interview and the follow-up gives me confidence that they are a person with grit. Yeah, it's funny. Do you think it's changed? And I asked that like, so my old boss, who's a little bit old school, comes from the NetApp EMC world. He used to say, Jubin, if they do not send us a thank you note, they're not getting the job. And we would interview, you know, younger folks, like the next generation. And it's just a different style. Do you feel the same way? I do, but I don't. Yes. Yeah, I want to see that. What I really like is I get a LinkedIn something that picked up on something we talked about and it's appropriate. Or I get a follow-up that is a link to the book that they discussed in the interview. So being appropriate, being, you know, opening up the conversation beyond just I'm answering that, yeah, I'm interested. Thank you for the interview is really important. If I don't get the email, I definitely notice it though. And yeah, I've got gray hair and yes, maybe I'm old school, but if they're not going to send you a note isn't it frustrating? It's just like, oh, she was, like he or she was so good. Oh, like send me a note. What are they going to do when they're following up on a customer? Are they going to exactly. do the same thing? Just not follow up? Just hope the customer doesn't notice it? That's not acceptable. That's not a sales plan. That's not gritty. Gritty, you're going to make sure that you're going to be successful. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Before we move on to living in the customer's shoes, the other thing I wanted to get your thoughts on was you mentioned culture earlier, and it, it kind of triggered something for me where a lot of the time, especially in my world, which is early stage venture, we invest in, for the most part, highly technical founders that don't necessarily have go-to-market expertise. And typically, the independent of the expertise, the teams that they're building out are highly technical engineers. Like you said, you had 20 people on your team at PassLogix, four or five of them were executives, maybe two or three were go-to-market oriented, and the rest were engineers. And so what ends up happening is that you have an engineering culture for the most part. And I think Twilio may have had that in the early days, even potentially when you joined. Was there a rub around, especially, and I, I asked Bob Fratty, the CRO of, of Slack, the same question, this effort of getting it from an engineering to sales-oriented culture when it's like, well, our product does, you know, as you said earlier, right, it's our product is the selling and that kind of thing. The origin story of the company is so entrenched in an engineering-driven culture. Did you feel like it was a lift to be able to move it out of that? Yeah. Yeah. And for good reason, by the way. There was a mindset that the self-service model was good enough. 
we were reaching, you know, phenomenal success with an increasing set of customers. But yeah, we did have to, through results, show that by selling the way customers buy, instead of expecting a customer to buy the way we sell, was necessary in order to get to a lot of customers that would not consider a self-service experience. I mean, yeah, their developers might actually sign up, but scale, established legacy enterprises are expecting vendors to figure out how to supply them the way that they're operating. They're not going to mold their models to fit the myriad of vendors that are out there. They're expecting the reverse. So through literally incremental success, landing uh, transactions with scale organizations that got bigger and bigger and doing scale agreements that set us up for a long-term partnership with these customers, not just relying on our self-service terms of service, and showing that there's a much larger enterprise opportunity out there. The evidence, the data, which is the way that we power decisions at Twilio, I think inspired leadership, inspired Jeff Lawson to recognize that with the right kind of uh, selling humans and the right kind of selling motion, we would be successful beyond the reach of our self-service API to be able to reach more customers. And it wasn't going to happen overnight, and I didn't expect that. But what I am very excited about is we've been able to demonstrate it and make it an important part of Twilio. It's not everything. I'm going to say that product at the end of the day rules the world. Sales execution is, is algebra. Product is calculus. You know, the multiplying effect that you can get from expanding functionality and capability, the more you put in the sales rep's bag that attaches to a transaction, the further you can go faster. And that happens because of product. And we feel privileged to be able to have the tech stack that we have and the partnership that we have with the people that produce it. Yeah, that makes sense. What would be the case against having these salespeople? Is it this idea that, oh, it's, we don't need these sleazy used car salesmen, like, and I'm being hyperbolic, but developers don't want to talk to salespeople. Is that the argument against the sales culture and, you know, more importantly, bringing salespeople on to help guide and navigate the customer through, the, through their journey and buying process? You know, the central casting view of what a sales human is, you said sleazy, used car salesperson. Yeah, that's got to die. That's got to go away. I don't know any scenario where that's appropriate, except maybe selling used cars. But if you look at sort of the modern view of you know, curating an experience to be able to drive adoption, probably if the company has a product whose entire addressable market is only developer personas, and they're not interested in organizations, the addressable market does not include organizations that have procurement processes or have a need to secure terms that go beyond sort of a standard terms of service. Yeah, they're probably fine with a completely developer-led self-service model. The reality is a large number of dev-driven API companies talk to me all the time, and they all hit some kind of ceiling, recognizing that they do need to move up market and they have value to sell up market. And they're then trying to figure out how do we add selling to what they're doing. I think the norm, because if you go look at overall IT spending, you know, 65% of it's behind an enterprise. I think the norm in terms of companies that are out there offering value that can be consumed by companies, those vendors need to go to the enterprise eventually. 
I think the role of the steak dinner rep in an NFL city is dying or dead. This notion of the Rolodex relationship person who's been in a certain area or geography selling into the same 20 accounts who relies on that to kind of farm for business is changing. Do you, and I've totally led the witness, do you agree or do you still think there's a place for that? And even, you know, as you go up market at Twilio. I agree. And I'm going to answer it in a little bit of a different fashion. I don't golf. People are shocked by the way that I don't golf. And by the way, it's not because I don't want to spend time with people, but it's I don't have the time to spend. And I'm finding that more and more customers are the same way. They just don't have the time to spend. I think that a high majority of customer need is being addressed in a different selling model, which is an informative, educational, supportive model. It's not from a, I've got the right relationship, so I'm going to drive a transaction just based on the relationship. As a matter of fact, I don't even think I know of a situation that I've been in in the last five years that relationship was the only thing that would ultimately drive the transaction. But that being said, adding relationship to the core value that you create for the customer, you know, being able to have the trust with that organization that can lead to facilitating the commercial process is definitely helpful. It's not going to make the deal on its own but it's gonna help you to overcome obstacles and challenges that may come up along the way. The reason it's diminishing in value though is, if I go back to my early days of selling, people were in roles for a decade or more. That's not the case anymore. You read my, my chaotic background, you know, staying somewhere more than five years is the exception. So there's no guarantee that the relationship that you have with the CIO at whatever company is going to be the slam dunk way to win the business or even keep the business because that person may move on and do something else. So you've got to be prepared to actually deliver value. And I actually love it because there's an honesty around the value that's being delivered. And if, if listen, if we're not supplying what you need in a way that gives you confidence and results that you're looking for, we should be fired. But if we are delivering the value and we can manage a reasonable commercial relationship, I would look for continually expanding that relationship to help the, the customer to do more and more. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to characterize it. And, I, and you mentioned intelligence. I do think the bar goes up for intelligence. And I mean intelligence not in the like, hey, I have a good SAT score, or I got good grades in high school, but intelligence in the sense that you understand what your product does and more importantly, you understand it because you can understand what problems your product solves for customers. And I do think that bar continues to go up higher and higher and sales reps start to look a lot more like SEs than they ever have because they need to understand the actual nuances of what their product does to actually describe and articulate what they're solving. I can't agree more. I mean, as a matter of fact, we look for technical skills. It may not be specific technical skills, but the fact that somebody has the ability to comfortably deal with technical circumstances. By the way, we hire a lot of non-traditional profiles. There are selling humans in the Twilio sales organization that have come from finance, business operations, sales ops. You know, folks that have a highly analytical approach in the roles they've had in the past tend to have foundational skills that make a difference in working with customers that are looking for you know, deeper understanding and a more analytical approach to presenting and ultimately adopting our platform. Mm -hmm. Speaking of customers, 
Is this still the case? Twilio's standing offer to customers used to be that you can trade your shoes for a pair of red chucks with the Twilio logo on them. And customer's shoes are hung all around the offices, labeled with the name and company of the customer. Was that true? It's absolutely true. 100% true. We invite customers to everything. And we have events all the time. And people will tell you that attending our events, it doesn't feel like a selling experience. It feels like more of an educational and customer examples type of experience. We're always asking customers to share what they've done on Twilio. We're asking customers to help us to be better. Every time we have a QBR, every time that we have a, a major event internally, we bring customers in, company kickoff, sales kickoff. We celebrate our customers. Our customers are why we do what we do. And the whole concept of the customer's shoes is something that Jeff Lawson came up with, that we should be walking in our customer's shoes. We should understand their experience. We should understand how they came to Twilio, what they ended up doing and what worked and what didn't work. And in order to be able to codify that, to reinforce it in our culture, yeah, we have this shoe exchange. And when our offices open up again, you're welcome to come and see the shoes of many C-suite or dev management customers that are hanging from the walls of our offices. It's a really important part of our culture. Can I have a pair of red Twilio chucks? Can you have a pair? Yeah. Are you a customer? Okay, maybe I have to be. I, apparently I am. On my phone, I'm a customer 12 different ways. Okay, and then last one. Speaking of living in the customer's shoes, technical, all these things, does Twilio still have all their employees, including assistants, recruiters, lawyers, sales reps, and everything in between, build a Twilio app? One of the most coveted pieces of swag, it probably shouldn't even be called swag, most coveted items is a red track jacket. The red track jacket is awarded to employees when they build their first app. And the company, by the way, does encourage all employees to build an app. And yes, it is a part of our experience. And we have a special team that provides training so that even non-technical people can build an app. And we have a special event where people demonstrate their apps at Wednesday at dinner. And we celebrate the apps as they get demonstrated and people get their red track jackets. So yeah, it's, again, putting the team member, you know, whether they're um, somebody working in accounting or somebody working in HR into the shoes of our primary persona, a developer. This is the experience the developer has when they're actually building on Twilio. So it informs them in a way that's really powerful about what it means to use Twilio. And it's a very important part of our culture as well. Very cool. It's the red track jacket that I want. Okay, got it. Roger that. Thank you so, so much. I don't even have to ask you what the word grit means to you. You've already done a great job explaining that. So thank you. If someone hears this and wants to be a part of this incredible ride, how should they and could they get a hold of you? Ping me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way. And uh, you know, don't be deterred if I'm slow to respond. I do go through all of my LinkedIn. As a matter of fact, I think you reached out to me on LinkedIn to begin with as well. I did. I did. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you and I will see you next time.